Welcome to Never Rewrite. I'm Isaac Askew. And I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And today we are joined by guest Brian Geneseo to talk about a rewrite that he successfully executed at Khan Academy. Brian, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So the genesis for this uh, talk, you gave a, a lightning round speech at the latest lead dev, which was awesome. And you talked about how Khan Academy, you migrated their systems from Python to Go. It took three and a half years, but it was successful. And I was like, oh, we, we, we have to talk about this because this is awesome on all of our levels. So uh, why don't you, for the audience, lay out how that, just the, the general uh, idea, the genesis of the project and all of that. Yeah, so... You know, this is this didn't come out of nowhere. Of course, um, there was uh, there were a lot of motivations for doing this, including a really strong forcing function, which was we were on Python 2.7, and uh, that was end of life. And Python 3.0 was not backwards compatible, so we knew no matter what, we needed to rewrite our backend one way or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. From a so let me just enter. So I've written like one exactly one utility in python uh mm -hmm. and i the developer that i was pairing with gave me a compliment she, was, she said your python is correct but it looks like a java developer wrote it and i'm like well totally mm -hmm. you, you've got me so it was idiomatically wrong but it worked correctly how not how breaking was the change from python two seven to three because i know it wasn't back forwards compatible but I, just how bad was it i don't know Hmm. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I was not I was not in that initial decision hmm. um, to to do this. And so uh, I I tend to be a front end developer who's full stack. And at the time I was an IC. I'm a manager hmm. today. So um, when we made this decision, I, I really didn't get involved with uh, the hmm. difficulty on why we were going to 3.0. I just know that this was the forcing function. Um, for us, uh, we're on Google Cloud Platform, and uh, you know they were going to support us for a little while after end of life, um, but they also wanted us to get off of it, and so we knew we had to move to something. But yeah, I I don't have an answer for that. I I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Oh, that's cool. So right off the bat, you've got you've hit one of the fundamentals that Isaac and I have sort of hit on in the past about that makes a, a rewrite successful, which is. You had a forcing function that forced you to do it. You had to get off Python 2.7. Google was not going to let you stay. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't optional, which was one of the things. Like you, you had to do it. You had to re do a rewrite and you had to finish it at some point. So that is immediate. So uh, it took three and a half years, if I remember right, if it I wrote it down right. Yeah. Uh, so that was brutal. How did, could you tell us more about that process? <laughs> Sure. Uh, so, you know, I was a part of this process at the very beginning, and that was grinding through everything that Khan Academy is and does. Um, and we took a few different perspectives, one of them being product um, focused. So, you know, not what is the code that we have, but what are the things that we do? Uh, and we even broke that down into two main categories. One we called um, minimal viable experience. We didn't call it product because we already had a product. What is? Mm -hmm. What are the things we do today that make us us? And if we stopped doing them, we wouldn't be kind of getting anymore. That was minimal viable experience. And then there was everything else. The, the the other things that 
may or may not directly support that. Um, you know, we are not a user management platform, but we have user management, and that mm-hmm. is necessary for that MVE. So that makes it an MVE. Um, but uh, you might look at something like reward mechanics and say, well, if we didn't have record, reward mechanics, we're still Khan Academy. Um, mm-hmm. Our mission is still there. And so that would not make it into the MVE. And so that was the product perspective. And so the entire product team grinded through every single thing we did and categorized things by team and function and, and things like that. And then we also looked at it from a technical perspective. And uh, you know, we had already started this process of thinking about starting to split um, in Python our monolith into services. And so we already had boundaries within the code. And so we kind of looked within, even though it was a monolith, we looked within these boundaries to start asking ourselves, what are the things that this system does? Um, and um, you know, another thing we were doing was was migrating uh, from REST to GraphQL when we had to make this decision. We were about halfway through that process as well. And what we really realized, um, and this this totally makes sense when I started to think about it, is 98% of all code gets executed in the back end via some API. Mm-hmm entry point, whether it be REST or GraphQL or whatever. And so then we started looking, thinking about it from that perspective, not the code that's overwhelming. There's a million lines of code there, but here's every single REST endpoint GraphQL query and mutation that we currently have. Now that doesn't cover everything, but that kind of, that gets us started. And then we start looking at it. What features do these things support? What is the current traffic? Um, What is the complexity? Tons of spreadsheets, every team had them, and we really just grinded through every single one of these to figure out, you know, this is in REST, so it needs to move to GraphQL. That's part of this work. Um, This is in GraphQL. It can be ported the way it is. And um, this is really complicated and has, has, um, there have been dragons here in the past. This is going to, this is going to be at a higher estimate for moving it. Um, So we really thought about it as endpoints and entry points to GraphQL from a technical perspective. That's awesome. So how long did it take uh, the the minimum viable experience? Did that get finished earlier than the three and a half years or was that? Yeah. Yeah. The minimal viable experience was a little less than two and a half years. Um, and then we worked on the remaining parts of it uh, the following year plus. And um, after the minimal viable experience was done, we were able to start freeing up engineers to uh, start working on new features because we had a we had a rule no new features in Python mm. uh, because of course if you put it in if you were to put a new feature in Python you also then have to port that feature to go. Um, we talked yeah. about this last episode too actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you don't want to I got a question for you then. Yeah. So for the for these boundaries for the minimum viable experience boundaries mm-hmm. for the things that fell outside of those boundaries was it mm-hmm. just that after you ported the uh, the ones that were within the boundaries over. The ones outside the boundaries were just disabled until they were ported as well? No, they were still in uh, Python. So, um, you know, we very much uh, adopted a strangler fig pattern here. Mm. Um, uh, And GraphQL made that, um, basically enabled that for us because 
we weren't porting at the feature level. We weren't porting at the object level. We were porting at the field level. Um, right. It was entirely possible to have user user first name be in Python and user last name be in Go, and so we just moved things over. And so by the time the MVE was over, all of the things that supported the needs of those features were in Go, and all the things that were in the what we called endgame, the second phase of this, were still in Python, and then they needed to move over as well. So that that is a huge thing that you just uh, pointed out that I, I want to emphasize and, and I guess bring up and and tease out more. So you had incremental like you were delivering. You didn't have a two and a half years where you built the new thing in Go and then flipped the switch and turned it on. You were incrementally as Isaac and I have come up with the term thesis shipping uh, from Theseus, the ship of Theseus, where you've incrementally changed everything in it, but it was always the same Khan Academy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, you know, we we use the analogy very, probably very similar of saying that we were rebuilding our airplane while we were flying it, mm -hmm. bolt by bolt. Thing, you know, uh, <laughs> we would get shipments brought to the airplane, we would replace it, and then we would drop the old stuff. And by the end, we still had a flying airplane. It was just a complete. It was instead of B fifty two bomber, bomber, it was a, um, you know, it was a stealth. Um, whatever. Um, so, you know, that's the analogy we used a lot to try to explain to people what we were doing, but it sounds like it's probably very similar to what you're mm -hmm. calling Theseus. Yeah. Uh, so can you go in, because the way you described how you were using uh, GraphQL as a strangler fig, it was interesting, and I hadn't heard people doing it that way. So could you tell the audience more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in the strangler fig pattern, you have to put a proxy in front um, that then routes essentially to one or the other version of the thing that you're trying to replace. And that proxy was our GraphQL gateway. Uh, we started out with the Apollo gateway, um, but uh, ultimately ended up writing our own uh, gateway uh, because we were able to do it much faster. Still, though, that's the idea is that when you make a query, to uh, the, the federated gateway in GraphQL, there's a query planner that figures out which services to send it to because each service ends up having their own GraphQL um, schema. It mm -hmm. stitches it all together and then every, you know, the client doesn't know, but it may be making a request to the user service and the progress service and the content service all in one query, um, the way that GraphQL works with its nodes and everything. So you automatically get this proxy that is the gateway that sits in front of everything. And what we realized is that we could, uh, we could make a couple um, directives. Um, they, these were just custom built directives within GraphQL that allowed the same fields and mutations um, to exist in more than one service. Because normally you wouldn't be able to do that. You couldn't have username.firstname in the username service and then username.firstname in the admin service, right? Because the schema, the, the, the federator wouldn't know what to go to. So we built a system that, that added directives to these fields that would say, um, you know, this is currently the one to route to, essentially, and mm. this is the one not to route to. And that that's the... That's the overall outside view of it. And then what that enabled us to do is side-by-side -side testing. So every single field, we could move from being routed to Python to actually going to both places 
and the Python one is what's, what comes back, but then you've got data to compare, and then we build a report for it. And as soon as that's clean, then you switch over. The Python one exists, but the Go version is now the one that's in prod. And then once you're happy with that, you can just delete the Python one, remove mm -hmm. the directive from Go, and then now everything's completely in Go and doesn't even exist in Python. And you know, we had something like, I think it was 5,400 fields and mutations in our GraphQL API. Um, this was literally done one by one. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. You know, sometimes we'd group them, right? First name and last name have a lot of synergy, and so we would group them together. But our reports um, were uh, were individual fields. And then we could look at it and say, hey, there's some problems with last name, but good, first name's good to go. All right, let's, <laughs> let's move first name over. As an example, it, it's usually a little bit more complicated than that, but um, that, that's the basic idea on how we were able to use GraphQL as our uh, strength of fit pattern. That seems really, really powerful. Like the ability to support both, you know, the new and the old, and then also get a report on the differences between them. Have you considered, and I don't know where Khan Academy stands on this, but considered open sourcing that that piece of it? Be like, hey, here's a Strangler Fig enabler for GraphQL that let, helps you cut over. That seems like it would be a very useful piece of software for the world. Um, you know, it was so bespoke that it would be mm. hard to extract. Um, I mm. think. Um, it wasn't hard to implement though. Um, you know, it's, it's the type of thing where, um, you know, if you spend a little bit of time, cause, uh, the Apollo gateway, for example, is open source. Um, and I should add that, the I'm pretty sure I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure the go implementation of our GraphQL, um, federation, uh, server is open source. Mm. And, uh, so that would be built in to our federation server. Um, and, you know, we're actually still using a portion of Apollo. Uh, we're using the, uh, the, the query planner portion, because that's one of the hardest things, figuring out how to route all these things. Mm -hmm. We use a query planner um, portion from um, in, in Node. It's a separate service. Um, and because this is an internal API, it's highly cacheable. Um, so we just kind of say, here's the query. It gives us the plan. We hold on to the plan um, hmm. until we have a new uh, version of the schema, and then we bust the cache and use it again. So it's not like one of those things where you could just grab the server out of open source and just use it. You'll have to set it up along with mm -hmm. a query planner. Um, but I'm pretty sure it is uh, an open source project at this point. We, we built a couple of different open source GraphQL tooling. Um, I just don't remember which. Um, it's a hundred person organization. So like it's, it wasn't my part of the organization. Right. Whenever you started, how long did you think it would take to port everything over? We originally thought it was going to take about two and a half years. Hmm. Um, but, and it took three and a half years total. Um, but that was based on heuristics. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, it was very difficult to estimate how long a project like this was going to take until right. you start. And so we use a heuristical model for estimating. It was more like waterfall, less agile. Um, and I could go into why we, we went this way. I can justify this. But, um, no, no, we, uh, we found that more waterfall, the, the more you can define what it is you have, the easier the, pro the rewrite kind of project goes. So that's another thing that you guys right. did correct, like that we found really helps with this kind of operation is if you know, defining what you have up front. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's immutable. Mm -hmm. Right, Agile's great when you're when you're um, 
when your priorities are shifting and you're trying right. to build something from scratch. But when you have a thing that you know it has to do all the things and it can't do anything that's not in there or else you break the site, um, it, Agile doesn't give as many benefits in that case. And so we really, going back to what we did, is we use a heuristic to say, uh, I think it was somewhere around 50 lines of code per person per day. And that's how we started. And we created spreadsheets and tools to go figure out, you know, what what these things are. And then we could look at it and say, this is how much it's going to take. But, you know, anytime you hear a number like 50, you know that it's not accurate because that's clearly a human um, uh, convenient number to pick. It's not real. <laughs> I, um, I can write 50 lines of comments. Boom. Like that. Yeah, right. Right. I'll to do it. <laughs> Um, the reality, after we spent some time um, working on this, when we actually looked at our burn downs and whatnot, is that if we were to then take that heuristic um, and apply it to the reality, it was probably more like 40 lines per person per day. All of a sudden, we got something that we were able that our burn down matched our plan, and that's kind of what got us to a longer tail. And then there were other things unforeseen that you just can't, when this, the project's this big, you just can't estimate. Um, we we knew there would be unforeseen things, but we didn't know, for example, that we were going to have to replace the GraphQL gateway because Node.js was just too slow in processing data. When hmm. you put every, every request through this one bottleneck, that thing has to be fast, and it turns out it wasn't fast enough for us. And so we had to build our own gateway. Um, we didn't do it because it was fun. We did it because we had to. Um, and with that, um, you can't plan for that. You can only plan for something like that will happen. Right, right. the unknown unknowns. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so we, we had padding for that, but we didn't probably didn't have quite enough. So there were some things that had to come up and made the schedule. And if you look at our burn down chart, you'll see these bumps in it. And they usually represent things like that, where, where we realized the strategy we went with, um, the actual technical strategy wasn't exactly what we were going to end with. Yeah, I remember from the the slides in your presentation, you said you started with a million lines, approximately a million lines of Python. Uh, you want to tell the audience how many lines of Go you ended up with? A little bit more than a million lines of Go. Yeah, um, <laughs> and they're not. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect comparison, right? Because after two and a half years, we started building new features in the new system. Um, we also deleted features that we decided we weren't going to port. We, you know, but you know, even then, deleting features requires an estimation and an effort. You can't just turn the back end off because the front end right. starts to fail. So you have to, <laughs> you have to synchronize that. There's, there's messaging campaigns when things go away. You have to go find if there's users that are you know, heavily using it and make sure that they hear the message, they see the message. Right. You give them time to get off of their dependency on it, things like that. So, um, but you know, so some things didn't get ported, new things got added. But in the end, um, I think the statistic I have was, yeah, I mean, I've got exact lines here, but it was approximately um, 1 million lines of Python and 1.1 lines of Go when the project finished. So I think an interesting driving factor here that makes it a little bit different from the other rewrite stories that we've talked about before is that you had to do it, right? This was a forced upgrade. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the other ones we've discussed on the show before were 
uh, like we were considering doing it because of scaling issues. It wasn't a force thing. It was like it would be more efficient if we built it this way. We're solving like a bottleneck if we built it this way. Um, and then we had talked about too, Jeffrey, like some of them will start and then you'll burn through so much cash with pulling your developers off other features to try to do this rewrite that eventually management might get frustrated and say, all right, screw this. We're going to kill the project because we need you guys working on the other things that are making money. Whereas mm -hmm. again here, this had to happen. You had mm -hmm. to upgrade this version. Um, right. So that's kind of a great driving factor uh, that provides a bit more um, oomph behind the message, so to speak. Whereas the other ones, you had the option to quit. Yeah, and it would be disingenuous for me to suggest that it had to be done this way. Um, okay. Because we didn't just, we we could have just gone to Python 3. We could have stayed in this halfway point between Rust and GraphQL. We could have stayed Monolith. Um, but these were all things we were currently working on migrating towards. And what we mm -hmm. didn't want to do is port the system that way. And so, and then there were other things like, you know, we as an organization just found Python wasn't right for us. Over time, Python wasn't the right language for us. We, we thrive in a statically typed language. And um, also, you know, people will argue with this. I've seen plenty of people <laughs> arguing this point. Spaces. Tabs. But oh yeah, Go is faster. Go is just faster for us than Python. Um, maybe you can optimize the Python to be as fast as Go, but in general, we found the same code ran an order of magnitude faster in Go than it did mm. in Python. And when you have millions mm. and millions of requests every day, you know the user doesn't notice the difference that it just ran uh, that the actual code executed ten times faster, but our bottom line notices. That oh, for it sure. executed. Um, when you talk about you know fractional uh, percentages of computing power um, and number the number of instances that need to be running and things like that, um, we notice a significant drop in our uh, overall operating costs to run our instances. Hmm. Um, Did and, you expect uh, that, or that yeah, was just a happy? We were hope we were really hoping for that. Yeah, we were really hoping for that, and all. All estimations we did up front when we chose Go, because there were other options that we could have picked, including Python 3. Um, but when we chose Go, we uh, we one of the things is we said, you know, in for the examples that we had ported, as you know, as our just tracers, we found that they um, they executed on the server approximately 10 times faster. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, you know. And again, I've I've been I've been trolled on the internet, or we've been trolled on the internet, <laughs> suggesting that. And you know, it's not an argument I want to have. When we looked at our implementations, <laughs> it, that's what we got. Right. It doesn't and, matter what you can do; it matters what we can do. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and um, you know, and in the end, also static typing was important because Kotlin was another choice for us. For example, uh, we chose to not use Kotlin. Um, there were others in the list. Nice. Uh, yeah. So uh, one thing Isaac hit on, and I know it was part of your presentation that we mm -hmm. didn't touch on at all. So the pressure to have new features and the, that you know impacting the bottom line. So you had a almost you had a two and a half year major freeze followed by a year of minor freeze. Mm -hmm. How did that impact your product organization? and maybe the company's bottom line, if that's something you can share. Sure. Well, you know, bottom lines uh, are different for us because we're nonprofit. Hmm. Um, we're in a for-profit world. Every user makes you money, ideally. Mm -hmm. 
um, in a nonprofit world, every user costs us money. And so we just think about finances differently than you mm, would right. if you were a for-profit company. Interesting. Um, where, you know, in a, the, it's more about opportunity costs when we don't write new features than it is sales. Um, I mean, I, that's not, it, it's more complicated than that because we do have some sales channels, even though we are uh, nonprofit, um, we do have some, some sale, some offerings, but um, I think bottom line is one we are less concerned with. Uh, we are more concerned with a few things, you know, number one is, um, you know, as a product organization, when you talk about product managers and designers, um, it's really hard being in an organization, having all these ideas and being told no for years at a time. And um, that was extremely difficult for our organization. Um, enough that if you look at who was in the design and product team when we started and who was in the product and design team when we ended, <laughs> I think the answer is one person stayed. From the beginning to end. Oh, wow. Um, and that's, that's huge. Yeah, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Um, and, you know, it, again, it would be a disingenuous and uh, oversimplification to say it's only because of this. But it was a big driving factor. Um, and then from a product perspective, you know, even though we're nonprofit, we do have, quote, unquote, um, uh, um, we, 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 have, we have people that are our competitors. And... They were building features ahead of us. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need to worry as much about competitors in this space, but we do need to care about relevancy. Um, you know, right. I, I, I talk a lot about um, the Mr. Wizard factor. Um, you know, you may be old enough to remember Mr. Wizard. I remember um, Mr. Wizard. Yeah, but... But yeah, so there's probably an age difference there between the two of you. Um, you both know you know you both know uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy though, right? Mm -hmm. right? I do. Yeah. So Mr. Wizard was a precursor to Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the Science Guy just did it better and more flashy and had better marketing. And mm. uh, Mr. Wizard, who in my childhood experience was pretty awesome, um, lost relevancy and uh, no longer. Most people don't even know who that person is anymore. And I. I no, just assumed we, he we had died. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, no, he was—he was in, in my mind. He was an older man on TV in the early in the <laughs> mid '80s. So it's yeah. 30 years later. He's probably not with us anymore, and that's why you don't hear you from don't, him. I got it. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I will Google this story. after the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the actual story. I just use it as an analogy. Of yeah. How, <laughs> nobody knows Mr. Wizard unless you were a kid in the '80s. But everybody knows uh, Bill Nye, and there wasn't a lot of time in between. Um, I think, you know, I, I just I want I want to make sure that we remain relevant, that we can mm -hmm. we can uh, fill out our mission. And um, when you don't develop features for two and a half years, a lot of things happen. You know, our SEO dropped significantly because we weren't paying attention right. to it. Um, other companies were building out SEO features that that increased their SEO juice. Um, and uh, we were not, so they, we got out searched and there's a lot of things that happen in that space where we, um, we simply, um, you know, fell behind in the market. And, you know, thankfully yeah. this was a success. It didn't kill us. We walked away and immediately built a very um, prominent feature on our system um, that we call Conmigo. It's an AI driven um, uh, tutor 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting a lot of attention. And, um, and uh, you know, our, our new system allowed us to build it very quickly. So thankfully, we were able to recover from this. But mm-hmm. during that time, um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a pretty big hit to the organization. Yeah, and I can imagine, too, like if you said that there was so much um, churn in the product team because of mm-hmm. uh, presumably just because of the lack of being able to be effective product people. They're trying to pitch these new ideas and none of them can happen because of the freeze. I can see that frustration. So there's so many different pressures here that this rewrite was able to withstand to deliver that are, that seems a bit uncommon compared to other rewrites we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think the pressures were uncommon, but your ability to actually deliver in the, in the face of those pressures is extremely uncommon. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, what's also happening during this time is the pandemic. And, um, you know, we tripled our traffic overnight Um uh, during that time, uh, and that caused its own struggles and difficulty in sometimes deprecating things. Um, we had to think about strategy and things like that. That, and we're in the middle of a rewrite when that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's that happening as well. Um, it did change the way that we think about, uh, you know, the entire industry thinks about toolings like Khan Academy um, when all of a sudden we really need some offline asynchronous um, learning tools mm-hmm. uh, that we didn't need as much before for different forcing functions. Uh, so I had one more topic, if you have a little bit more time. Uh, sure. You mentioned at the end, so you know, the one of the big pitches that people always say is, oh, we're going to do this rewrite, and then everything that we're going to be able to do, such good development is going to be so fast. Mm-hmm. And then you know, usually that never happens. But it sounds like, so you did the rewrite, and um, you know, was the code that you started with okay? You said it wasn't performant enough, uh, but like, was the Python good code, or was it like, oh man, this co- terrible code base that we had? And is the and are you guys happy with the Go code and the way it's formatted now? Is it doing all the things that you wanted and hoped? Uh, yeah, I think so. So um, you know, on the scale of horrible to excellent, I would say we had bad Python, and we now have good Go. Um, so, you know, in some ways, we ported some things pretty much verbatim over to Go. And so, therefore, we have some of the some of the um, smaller architectural pieces are still the same in Go. Um, that being said, one of the things that slowed us down was um, lack of tests from two perspectives. Um, one of them is our testing wasn't great. But the other is that testing wasn't great on a dynamic language, and your compiler mm. is your first line of unit tests in when you mm. lack unit tests, right? And so um, going to a static language, and then also in the process, we wrote a ton more tests. It's easier to move fast in a world mm-hmm. where you have much better test coverage. 100%. Than, and, <laughs> and then you also have all of the, the contracts that, static types give you come along with that too. And, um, and uh, so because of that, yes, we are, we are developing new features significantly faster than we ever did before. Um, you know, it's hard to measure um, uh, efficiency, right. but, um, but we, we were able to put out this, this and bring to market uh, this AI tutor product the day that um, OpenAI released uh, Chap GPT four uh, because it was built on Chap GPT four. We were partnering with them under the hood. Hmm. Um, we were doing this while we were finishing the port. Um, wow! 
you know, in, in the very end. And uh, we were able to get it done. Um, we, we did that a month and a half after we finished the port. We put out this, um, wow. the, per, the first version of this uh, new feature. So. Is the port, is the migration done, done? Like the Python is off, it's not running in production? Totally mm-hmm. gone? Yeah, nice. totally gone. It was, it was done it was done on January uh, 27th. <laughs> we were able to turn it all off. Excellent. Uh, so if I could summarize all of the amazing things that you that your, you and your team did, seemed like you did correctly, or uh, as we would define it correctly here at Never Rewrite. Uh, you used the strangler fig pattern to do side-by-side comparison and testing. Uh, you did incremental delivery where you never had two... Uh, you never had a giant work in progress and an untested set of code. You were doing feature by feature, and when you were happy, you cut it over. And so there was not a lot of untested. There was never any real untested, unworked code. You were able to, or you did a huge amount of upfront work defining what the current system was before you started to to move it over. Uh, and you were able to freeze out any changes so that you didn't have to you didn't have new work coming in that you had to then port over as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's 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 correct. Am I am I proving your thesis? <laughs> uh, well, our thesis is that rewrites generally don't work, and you should do all of those things that you did instead. Okay. Yeah. So, so instead of yes. rewrite, you should rewrite. <laughs> yes. Well, that 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 was the that was the feedback we got from the internet uh, on the first show. So, yes, instead of rewrite, you should rewrite. Uh, that, that's why we came up with terms like thesis shipping, where right, right. You know, we're trying it. to use the, the ship of thesis metaphor to say, look, it's it's the exact but, same yeah, thing. The, the <laughs> idea, too, is that the overwhelming pressure that you face to rewrite, you have to basically have a cosmic alignment of forcing factors, being able mm-hmm. to resist product pressures, and all of these things that you've just described to actually deliver, such that we say never rewrite as a catch-all for Pretty much, you should never rewrite unless you have this perfect alignment. Sure. And it just seems like you you've had that. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I would be a fool to claim that this was repeatable, right? Right. <laughs> it, it worked. Thank you for saying that. We needed that. Yes. Yeah. No. It, it, it worked, and we have a lot of lessons learned. And I'm telling mm-hmm. you, my lessons learned: the things that went well, the things that didn't go well, etc. Um, mm-hmm. But it worked for us at the time that we did it with the people we had and the technology that existed, um, this could have killed us. We, mm-hmm. it, was an, it was an existential risk for us to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And it was an existential risk to do something. And so we chose the least um, risky existential risk to, <laughs> Got it. to go with. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's a big point. You basically, you're betting the company on this rewrite. Right. But doing nothing, we were, we were guaranteeing that. <laughs> right. Google would eventually shut you down. Certain failure. Google yeah. would have shut us down. Yeah. In fact, they would have probably shut us down a lot earlier than when we ended. Um, they held on with us because they knew we were actively working on it and showing progress and, and whatnot. But mm-hmm. we did have a contractual a contract with them that said we would finish by January 31st of 2023. Um, Oh, so you finished with four days to spare. Wow. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. 
Awesome. Brian, this has been awesome and an incredible episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch or learn more about Khan Academy, uh, how would they do that? Sure. Well, I'm Brian Geneseo on LinkedIn. As far as I know, I'm the only one. Um, and uh, yeah, I work for Khan Academy. We are a, uh, you know, we our mission is to provide a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And um, we are always hiring, or I should say we are often hiring. Uh, you can go to our careers page and see um, uh, what roles we're hiring for today. Um, and uh, if you're not familiar with Khan Academy, um, I, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, so check it out. You can, you know, you can learn anything that's on our platform at least. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, and thank you for listening. I'm Jeffrey Sherman. I'm Isaac Askew. And this is Never Rewrite. <laughs>